0: I know that you know about the Reformation. The Protestant Reformation that began in Germany in 1518 with Martin Luther and the rediscovery of the gospel. You know all about that. You remember that God used this unknown Catholic monk at a, at a monastery in a small German city who got saved reading the book of Romans which is interesting, which is crazy to hear, right? Here's this monk and priest in the Catholic Church, and he's not even saved. And the reason he wasn't saved is because the Catholic Church had successfully polluted and buried the gospel for the previous thousand years of its existence. You also remember that he had gotten his hands on a Greek New Testament, a newly published Greek New Testament, and began reading that instead of the church-sanctioned Latin Vulgate. As a result of that, he began to see things, practices, theology in the Catholic Church that were either not in the Bible, were even against the Bible. And so when Luther hammered his 95 theses into the church door at Wittenberg, protesting the idolatrous practices of the Roman Catholic Church, that literally birthed the Reformation into existence. These are the hammer blows heard around the world as hundreds of thousands of people, eventually millions of people in Europe, were hearing the gospel very first time in their lives instead of the foul gospel of rome with its corrupt system of human works and merit you understand the reformation led to the shifting of entire civilizations you understand this is this is how and why we believe This, this led to yours and my salvation The challenge was, the challenge that the reformers like Luther and Zwingli and Calvin and Knox now had to face is that now they have all these newly converted people freshly excommunicated from the Roman Catholic Church and everyone's just sort of looking at each other going, well, that was fun. Now what do we do? What they did do was church. What I mean is they started from scratch. They scrapped everything that Rome had taught, rather mistaught them about the church, and with the blueprints of the Bible in their hands, rebooted what the church is from the ground up, with the Bible in their hands, with nothing but the Bible in their hands, thinking through, okay, what does the church exist to be and do in the world? You understand, one of the great rediscoveries of the Reformation was not just the rediscovery of the gospel, but the rediscovery of the Church. What the reformers discovered is that the church is not a building but a body of redeemed souls. The church is not a building. The church is the stage upon which God puts his worth and beauty on open display to the world. The reformers understood that the church is the instrument, the primary instrument that he uses to advance the plan of redemption unfolding in the world. They understood that the church is the grand scene upon which the perfections of Yahweh are portrayed to the universe. And you see, we are a church. We are a church. Which means we bear the weight of the world on our shoulders, don't we? Because you understand the church is the last barrier just before the gates of hell. The church is the last stop Before eternal souls plunge themselves into destruction, you know that, right? And so if we're going to do this church thing, if we're going to do this, we might as well be the kind of church that causes ripple effects into eternity, right? I mean, if you're going to go through the trouble of being a church, we might as well go all the way and be the kind of church that doesn't just settle for this city alone, but even ventures into Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth because that's exactly the kind of church we want to be. That's the only kind of church there is to be. The Bible doesn't conceive of another kind. This is an all or nothing deal. And yet the issue is, the question we have to ask is, okay, well, if we're going to be that kind of church... If we're going to be a launch site for global ministry, if we're going to be a global outpost of joy in a world of despair, to do that, you're going to need to have a plan. And it just so happens we do have a plan. Let's call it, oh, I don't know, a 20-year plan to change the world. I know that sounds a bit sensational. I don't know any other way to do it. But we're serious. We really mean that when we talk about changing the world. Because what we mean by that is reaching God's elect who are in the world. We mean making disciples. Disciples who make disciples. Who plant churches. Who make disciples. And on and on it goes until eventually all of God's elect are reached. And history is over. That is what we mean. That's what the church exists to do. And the reason why we're talking about this is because what this is is Vision Sunday. We do this every single year, and what this is is a State of the Union address, a State of the Church address where we revisit our mission and purpose and goals and priorities and head-on-the-chopping-block convictions that we would rather die than compromise. So if you're new here, if you're visiting at this church, I think this is the perfect Sunday for you to visit because maybe today is the day you go from a shopper to being an owner because I think, I think you'll be tempted to buy in. Because what we're not after here is mere numbers. We're not after mere, mere people filling the seats. Rather, what we want is a Reformation church. Do you understand the Reformation is not over? Not even close. Not by a long shot. It's now been handed to us as new reformers. You understand, we are heirs of the Reformation. We are children of the Reformation. We are the new reformers. And so the question is, we, the issue is, we want to make Christ's community a haven and oasis of spiritual joy. We want to make it a place to change, to be changed, a place to connect, and a place to be captivated by the living God. How do we do that? That's exactly what this morning is designed to be. So let's... Do this. Let's talk about the church, let's talk about Christ Community Church, what it means to be Christ Community Church, and where we're going and how you can be a part. Here's where we're going. This morning, I want you to see the 20 year plan for our church. The 20 year plan for our church unfolding in four stages and how you can be a part of it. The 20 year plan for our church unfolding in four stages and how you can be a part. That's where we're going. And yet before we do that, before we look at the 20-year plan, we have to back up and we have to uh, remind ourselves of our mission statement that, that defines who we are. Because you understand, our, our 20-year plan, it comes from our mission statement. It comes from our purpose statement. And if you have the notes, uh, the mission statement is in those notes, but here, here it is. Here's, here's why we exist as a church. We exist as Christ Community Bible Church to do three things, to prize, To portray and to proclaim the supremacy of Christ in all things for the joy of all peoples. Did I steal half of that sentence from John Piper? Yes, I did. Not ashamed of that at all. But again, think about that. We exist to prize, to portray, and proclaim the supremacy of Christ in all things for the joy of all peoples. What does that mean? We exist to prize Christ as our highest treasure. He means absolutely everything. We portray Christ in redemptive relationships. We proclaim Christ as the sin-conquering Savior for the joy of all nations. That's our mission as a church. That defines who we are. And you, what this does is raise the question, okay? That sounds great. The question is, how do you do that? In other words, what are the non-negotiable, head-on-the-chopping-block convictions that you have got to have to be that kind of church? And the Bible gives us the answer there's more than seven but we have seven seven non-negotiable convictions that will help us prize portray and proclaim these are also in your notes you see them there to fulfill our mission we commit number one to preach the word and sound doctrine to preach the word and sound doctrine and by preach we mean expository preaching this sermon is an exception to that although i will do exposition very soon But when we talk about preaching the word and sound doctrine, we don't only mean from small groups. We also mean from equipping classes, small groups, even your relationships with one another. Because you understand the proclamation of the word is where it all begins because the power is in the word. The Great Commission literally unfolds through the proclamation of the word. Number two, to fulfill our mission, we will cultivate heartfelt treasuring of the triune God to cultivate heartfelt treasuring of the triune God. This is really important for us because we are not merely about obtaining knowledge, data, and information for its own sake. Rather, we want to learn how to treasure the living God, that he would mean absolutely everything to us because the Christ-exalting success of a church or the Christ-defaming failure of a church depends completely on the appetite that church has for the living God. Number three, we commit to pray with urgent passion for the impossible. To pray with urgent passion for the impossible because prayer, you realize, is not some mystical act of piety where we think we hear God's voice. No, it is the means through which God unfolds his power in the world. See, prayer is the urgent, Blood and guts act of calling the headquarters of heaven for everything we need as the church of Christ advances against the darkness. We must pray. Number four, to fulfill our mission, we commit to equip the saints for the work of ministry. To equip the saints for the work of ministry. And all that means is not merely training you to think theologically, but to live theologically. To to live out our theology. To be transformed by the things that we know. You see, all equipping is, which Ephesians 4, 11 and 12 tells me to do, and other elders and leaders, all equipping is, is the process of repairing wounded sinners with the word of God so that you can go back out there and fight in the trenches of the Great Commission. That's why we do equipping classes. That's why we do theology seminars, that's why we do small groups and biblical counseling and and books of the month and preaching on Sunday mornings, not merely to fill your head with data, but to prepare you for a life of ministry. Number five, we commit to speak the truth to one another, to speak the truth to one another, which doesn't merely mean being honest, I don't like your tie, rather what it is, is biblical truth. Biblical truth. In Ephesians 4:15, Paul said, Speak the truth to one another in love. And what he was talking about is our relationships with one another and what they should be like in the church. And what our relationships in the church should be like is filled with truth. And by that he means biblical truth, biblical substance. You see, I need your word-centered counsels and encouragements, and you need my word-centered counsels and encouragements. We need that to be conformed to the image of Christ. I need you. You need me. We commit to speak the truth in love. Number six, to fulfill our mission, we commit to love one another with radical affection. To love one another with radical affection, because you remember, you remember the words of Christ, those staggering words in John 13, 34 when he said, By this they will know that you are my disciples if and that's a big if you have love for one another. And the implication of that is that if we don't first have love for one another, there is no mission. Right? What do you say? is love for one another is the catalyst for a global mission of undaunted courage. So if we don't have love for one another, there is no mission. so we must commit to love. Number seven. Number seven, we commit, not certainly, it's last but not least, we commit, number seven, to proclaim the gospel both locally and abroad. To proclaim the gospel both locally and abroad, because again, it's not either or, it's both and. It's local and it's global. It is Jerusalem, but it is also the ends of the earth. You see, our mission, the church's mission, if you want to think about it, in its most simplified terms is that we are a church with a mission headed towards a destination. Our mission is the Great Commission. Our destination is the kingdom, which means in its most simple terms, our mission is to get as many people into the kingdom as absolutely possible to make disciples, and not even just make disciples, but make disciple makers, who make disciple makers, who plant churches that make disciple makers, and on and on it goes until all of God's elect are reached and history is over. So all of that, that mission statement, those seven non-negotiable convictions, that's driving the 20-year plan, that that defines who we are. And I hope you love the sound of all that challenging should i say humanly impossible though all of that is that's who we are as a church and if that's not who we are then that is who we must become and i know we've got our issues we are far from perfect we are light years away which is exactly why we need body buy-in Right? collective body buy-in by church to own this because i'm convinced that if we stick to what the new testament says We should die for Christ in His own time, in His own way. We'll build His church. So here we go. All of that fuels the twenty-year plan. Here it is: the twenty-year plan to change the world, unfolding in four sequential stages. Here we go, and you can see this in your notes. You can see there: we years one through five, we're calling internal impact. That's where we are right now. Years five through seven, we're calling regional impact. In other words, that describes how we impact neighborhoods, our city, the college campuses, the entire metroplex of 8 million people, 5.5 million of which probably do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's call that our Jerusalem and Judea. And by the way, if you didn't know this, the DFW has the fourth largest Muslim population in the entire United States, which means the nations who are hardest to reach are already here. Years 7 through 10, we're calling national impact. National impact, which means somehow, someway, what we do in this church must spill over the banks, as it were, and affect other churches outside of the state of Texas. That sounds crazy. It's not crazy. It's possible. I've seen it done. Let's call that our Samaria. And then finally, our ends of the earth, years 10 through 20, we're calling global impact. Global impact, which means it has to mean, at some level, church plants raising up, training, and sending our own missionaries. It has to mean, at some level, equipping pastors overseas to strengthen their own churches in their own countries and maybe a thousand other opportunities we've never even dreamed about. Global impact. The catch is, the catch is to get there, to make a regional, national, or global impact, we have to have internal impact as a church first. First. That doesn't mean that we don't seize opportunities as we get them to make impact outside the walls of the church. In fact, nothing at all, nothing is stopping you at all from reaching the lost people in your lives and having them into your home. You don't need my permission for that. I'm begging you to do that. But if we were going to make a collective blitz to conquer the world... We need internal impact first. Let me show you where I get this. Let's let's unfold these stages one at a time. In fact, just so you know, I'm going to spend about 98% of the time talking all about internal impact and what we must be as a church from the inside. The first stage of our 20-year plan, let's unfold this, years one through five. Years one through five, again, which we call internal impact, because again, that's the stage where we're at right now. In fact, we are in year three of the first five years of our plan. We're right in the middle of the first five years. And what we're talking about here is internal church health and growth. And all that means is that we are, lack of a better word, learning how to be a church again. You see, we're taking our time trying to cultivate the sort of robust supernatural body life inside the church that the Bible says you need to make an impact in the world because there's this wordy phrase that's been pinballing around in my head the last few years and yet I really believe it's the key to long-term impact of our church and here's the phrase ecclesiological health for missiological effectiveness ecclesiological health for missiological effectiveness what does that mean ecclesiology means church Missiological means mission, and what that means is, what that means, is, the more effective, the more uh, healthy our church becomes on the inside, the more effective for the mission we will be on the outside. With all my heart, let me show you where I get that. I want you to turn to John seventeen, John chapter seventeen, which you know, you know, is a Trinitarian prayer in which is revealed the eternal plan of redemption designed before the world began. If you're rusty on John 17, take the afternoon and spend time in it. It will change you. It will shape you. Because the the issue here is that embedded in this prayer from the Son to the Father, get this, is the cosmic secret for how a church can make a global impact. The cosmic secret for how a local church can make a global impact. What's incredible here, look at verses 20 through 26. Because believe it or not, in that text, Christ is praying for you. For you and every single person throughout history whom the Father had chosen to believe, whom he had given to his Son, for whom he would die and purchase with his blood. He's praying for you. And notice the thing for which he prays. For us. Verse 20, I am praying, Father, for those who will believe, verse 21, that they all would be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I am in you, that they would be in us. Why? So that the world may believe that you sent me. And I, the glory which you have given to me, I have given to them, that they would be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they would be perfected into one. Why? So that the world would know that you sent me and you loved them, even as you loved me. (laughs) And that is so staggering. I don't know how to wrap my head around that. Because the question is, what does it mean to be one? Like five times in those verses, Christ talked about being one, so that means it must mean it's a pretty big deal, and it's a massive deal. What does it mean to be one? Well, I'll tell you what it's not. It's not at all some kind of mushy, sentimental unity with other denominations. We're at the expense of our theological convictions. We all just sort of hold hands and get along. No, a a non-theological interfaith dialogue is the furthest thing from Christ's mind. In fact, it is the opposite of that. Rather, to be one, get this now, to be one together relates to our cosmic global mission to put Jesus Christ on display to the world. And you can tell, whatever it means to be one, whatever that means, it is profoundly Trinitarian. Look at what he says, verse 21, I'm praying that they would be one. Notice, even as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you, that they would be in us. Later he says, I in them, and you in me, that they would be perfected into one. What does this mean? <laughs> because I have minutes and not hours? Let me tell you what it means to be One. To be one together, listen carefully, means that we are a battalion of souls. Chosen and predestined, washed in the Savior's blood, who do three things together. We treasure Christ in community, we have unqualified submission to the Word of God. And we love one another with radical affection, just like the persons of the Trinity do. That's what it means. Let me say that again. You need to feel that. To be one together means that we are a battalion of souls, chosen and predestined, washed in the Savior's blood, who do three things together one, we treasure Christ together in community. Two, we have unqualified submission to the word of God. His house, his rules. And number three, we love one another with radical affection just like the persons of the Trinity do. Because when that happens, when we treasure Christ together, when we submit to the word of God, we love one another, what did Christ say the result would be? Look at the end of verse 23. I'm praying, Father, that they would be perfected into one. Why? For what purpose? To what end? That the world may know that you sent me and you love them even as you love me. Can you see there? The, The global purpose of being one I mean, we're not just having our private little party while the world burns out there. No, the church is God's theater, though. The world is God's theater. The church is the stage. And when we fulfill our mission to be one, what did Christ say the world would know? He says the world would know that the Father sent him. And the world would know not just that God loves us, but that God loves us even as he loves his very own son. I don't know how how to wrap my head around that. Do do you? I mean, that that is incredible. And I think what he's saying is when we treasure Christ, when we submit to the word, when we love one another, that is the means God uses to make Christ look beautiful and compelling to the watching world. There's something that happens in here, namely called being one. And that is so compelling that the world looks at what's happening inside the church. They open the door and look at that and go, oh, Christ is real. Oh, the Father loves them. And he loves them just as much as he loves his own son. That's incredible. The question becomes, okay, what does it actually look like to be one? And what does that look like to be one together? What is Christ picturing? And furthermore, how does being one together have a global impact in the world? And get this, the early church in the book of Acts fills in the blanks. Turn one book to the right. Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Because here in Acts chapter 2, what we see portrayed, what we see expanded out is what it looks like to be one. Very vivid, very practical ways we see what it looks like to be one, and get this, we also see the effect, the ripple effects of what being one has in the world for the mission of Christ. Starting in verse 42, Acts 2, 42, and I want you to notice the in-house activities to which the first church on the planet devoted itself. It says, they were devoting themselves continuously to the teaching of the apostles and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and bread. You see that? The in-house activities to which the church gave itself without ceasing. It says they devoted themselves continuously. They never stopped doing these four things. Number one, they devoted themselves to the teaching, literally to the doctrine of the apostles. What does that mean? That means they listened to preaching all the time. They studied doctrine all the time. They were immersed in this every single day. The apostles were always teaching the word. And, and you notice, you notice why it is it's first on the list. I mean, why is that first on the list? Because that's what drives everything we do. That's how we learn to do everything else. So if you wonder why we make such a big deal about doctrine and theology here, it's because we get it from this. But number two, notice that the church devoted itself to fellowship. Fellowship, what does that mean? The fellowship means that you share something together. It means that these people felt a profound responsibility for one another. I mean, that's what authentic fellowship is. It is doing the one another's to and for one another. It isn't just hanging out, watching a game, shooting the breeze. Although I will say, watching a game can be redeemed to be fellowship. You can do fellowship at a game. But at the end of the day, what fellowship is, is to repair one another's souls with the word of God. I need your Christ word-centered counsels and encouragements. And you need my Christ word-centered counsels and encouragements. This is intentional investment of the word of God into one another's lives. And you get the impression from the text that these people were always together. Sundays and throughout the week. Number three, the church devoted itself to the breaking of bread. To the breaking of bread, which is just a first century way that these people ate together in one another's homes. In other words, this church was a hospitable church. This church understood that the plan of God unfolds in the world through warm meals and cups of coffee and plates of pie and soft couches and inviting people into your homes and sharing your very lives with them. They understood this. And finally, number four, this church never closed, opened seven days a week, devoted itself to prayer. To prayer, literally the prayers, plural, which means they prayed a whole bunch and they prayed all the time because they understood that prayer was the means, the mechanism, the instrument through which the plan of God unfolds in the world. That's not all, because look at verses 45, 44 and 45. Notice the internal impact that, that's happening here. It says, and all those who believed were of the same mind, and they had all things in common. And notice what they did. They began selling pieces of property and possessions, and then the money that they would get, they would distribute to anybody who had need. Note, this is not socialism. This is not, this is not communism. What this is is generosity. This is just good church. This is in, in John 17 language, this is being one. Anytime there was a need in the church that they could not immediately need what, with what was in their wallet, they would sell anything they need to needed to to meet the crisis or need in that church. That's not all, look at verse 46. The prepositional phrase construction here is called the distributive which means day after day after day so translated this way day after day after day they were continually devoting themselves with one mind in the temple that what is that that's worship this is this is daily chapel here they, they didn't have their own building sound familiar that's so what did they do? They used the temple. They used the temple. And they worshiped. And they got preaching and teaching and biblical counseling from the apostles every single day. The point is preaching and worship and doing theology were the daily priorities of this church. And we would do well to imitate them. Starting tomorrow, church, 9.30 a.m. every day. I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. We're not going to do that. Sunday only, unfortunately. But I mean, these people were together every single day. And not just as a corporate body, but even throughout the week. Get this, in small groups, small groups. Look at verse 46 again. Breaking bread from house to house, receiving their food with gladness and sincerity of heart. And you wonder why I make us eat together. I know mandate is a loaded word right now. But you wonder why I mandate small groups eat dinner together. You wonder why? Because I get it from here. I get it from here. Not just because the early church did it, but because they understood that eating together, that doing this was essential for life and and health and growth of the church. And, And not just that. They did that because they wanted to. Look what he says. They received their meals together with gladness, gladness and sincerity of heart. I really want to eat with you. They loved to be together. You see, that's the kind of stuff I'm talking about when I'm talking about internal impact. Running a program, that's easy enough. This is the hard stuff. This is the hard stuff, and yet this is the kind of thing that builds a church. This is the kind of thing that if we do this well, we'll launch our trajectory and make make us successful for a global mission of undaunted courage. And I can imagine someone at this point saying, that's not true. That's not true. If all you do is focus on internal impact, growing together, fellowship, eating together, if all you do, if if that's all you do, you're never going to grow. You're never going to change. Nobody's going to get saved. You're going to be the same old church you always were. To which I reply, that seems logical, but that's not what the text says. Look at verse 47. They were praising God and having favor with all the people. Here it is. And the Lord was adding to their number those who were being saved. Here's that distributive prepositional phrase again, day day after day, after day, after day. And would you see what was happening here? What was happening inside the church was so compelling and irresistible. When they When they peeked inside and saw the robust body life happening inside the church, when they heard the teaching and the fellowship and the meals and the Prayers, they saw a community that was so compelling they could not help but want to be a part of it, and they got saved. My question is could could this be us? Could we be the Acts 2 compelling community to whom the Lord adds to our number? I I think we can. I think any church can if they stick to what the New Testament says. And again, like I said, you know, I am not a, a genius idea factory. This, this takes body, collective buy-in from the body of Christ. But this raises the question, okay, what does this look like for us at Christ Community? That that's great for the Jerusalem church. What about, what about the Arlington church? Because again, I mean, think about it, the clock is ticking. We've got three more years, three more years, starting today of this, of this first five years of our plan, two and a half years. How, how do we make Christ Community an oasis, an oasis of spiritual joy? We think about it this way, massive fires are started by little sparks, right? The entire state of California engulfed in flames from a single cigarette. Well, here's some little sparks for us. Some little ecclesiological sparks for us that if we are faithful to do them could ignite an inferno that is unleashed for the Great Commission. These are all in your notes if you've got those. I've got nine of them. Let's go through these spark number one. This will go fast. Spark number one to make our church a healthy church that changes the world first is abide in Christ. Abide in Christ. And I'm just going to say this. This is really where it all begins. This, This is so foundational. This literally means everything. Abiding in Christ means everything. And you remember abiding in Christ, right? John 15 he is the vine, you are branches. Without him, we don't bear fruit. That is abiding. And, and, this is, and again, what's so crucial about this text is that this is what it means and looks like to be a Christian in real time, in actual situations. In fact, if you asked me, what is your purpose as a pastor? What do you want to accomplish? What I want more than anything else is to do whatever I can to help you be a people who abide in Jesus Christ. And what is abiding? All abiding is, get this, all abiding is, is moment by moment, second by second, desperation and dependence upon Christ through the word. That's it. That's all I want for you. That and like a thousand other things, but at the foundational, that's what I want for you which means I'm talking about an IV drip line dependence upon the word as you go throughout your day. Not just that you know that it's true, but that the word of God is a means of survival to you. And what this means is, get, get this, is very important. This is no exaggeration. The most loving act of service that you can render to another human being is to have your soul saturated by the sacred text. It's true. Because the more Christ is in you, the more Christ will be displayed through you. We must abide. And if you need help doing that, on October 17th, we're doing an equipping class called Reading the Bible Supernaturally. If you want to learn how to read and study and meditate and improve on the method you already have, that's exactly what the class is designed to do. Let's learn how to read, study, meditate, be changed, transformed by our Bibles. That's October 17th. Number two. Number two, here at Christ Community, if we want internal church health and growth, do not forsake the assembling of the body. Do not forsake the assembling of the body. In other words, don't skip church. And I know how that comes across. I know there are different seasons, things that happen in our lives that prevent us from being as faithful to be here as we would like to, but. The reason why I say that is I'm fighting, we're fighting a, a prevailing mentality in America that doesn't understand the church as a body. Because you understand the church is a body, not a bag of fingers. The, the church is a body, not a bag of detachable limbs. I mean, Hebrews 10 is really, really clear that church is a really big deal. And it's a big deal precisely because we all, I don't know if you know this or not, but we all have a ministry waiting for us when we walk through those doors. And Hebrews 10, 24 through 25 tells us exactly what it is. Here's our ministry. Here's your job description as you walk in here on a Sunday morning. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Here it is. And let us consider carefully How to stir one another up to love and good deeds. Here it is. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, even as is the habit of some. And this all the more, even as you see the day approaching. In other words, friends don't let friends treat church as optional. Because it's not. It's not optional what the text says. And the reason why this is such a big deal is not because we get gold stars for good attendance. That's, that's, that's not what anyone is after. Rather, it's that what the church is designed to do on a Sunday morning is to stir one another up to love and good deeds. You just never know, do you? You just never know the intentional conversations you have on a Sunday morning could just be one of the things that God uses to keep that person from apostasy. One of the things you say as you intentionally interact with someone on a Sunday morning might just be the thing that helps them overcome prevailing sin in their lives. Or that provides the much-needed encouragement in the midst of unbelievable discouragement. That's the church. That's the church. Number three, if we want to be a healthy church that changes the world, we must be equipped for the work of ministry. We must be equipped for the work of ministry because again, Ephesians 4, 11 through 12 is really clear that guys like me and other leaders in the church that one of my main job descriptions, one of the main reasons why you hired me was not to do everything as if that were even possible, but to equip the saints for the work of ministry. That's why I exist. And what equipping means is not just practical training. What it is is to rewire our souls theologically so that we see the world the way God sees the world. That's equipping. To be equipped is to come to grips with the endless riches we have in Christ, which then frees you for radical sacrificial ministry in your life in the local church to see that you have nothing to lose. That's exactly why we offer classes in theology, marriage, parenting, finances, Bible, Hebrew, and Greek, not merely to fill our heads with information, but as a means to transformation, be equipped. Fourth key, these are going to go faster, fourth key to long-term health and growth at our church, serve the needs of the saints with your spiritual gifts. Serve the needs of the saints with your spiritual gifts. Again, hopefully this reads well. And it communicates what I, what I want to communicate. I'm not merely after you to take on more or to do stuff. Oh, well, here's church. You know, I just need to, oh, they're just going to ask me to do a bunch of stuff. That, what, I'm after, what I'm after is you to buy into the vision the New Testament has for the church and what it means to be a member of the body of Christ. And part of that is serving the needs of the saints because you understand the local church is kind of like an economy, When done well, it is a self-sustaining economy of faith and spiritual joy because we use our spiritual gifts to minister to one another. And we have so many. I can't even tell you how many needs we have in this church. There are so many. And we have tried to offer those from time to time, and they have not been taken up upon, seized upon. We do suffer, I will confess, a little bit with the twenty eighty epidemic, 20% of the people doing 80% of the work that exists here. It's not to guilt you, it's just to let you know that's, that's where we're at. And, and yet if you were to ask the question, okay, well, how do I get started? How, how do I know where to serve and how to serve in a local church? Here's my philosophy on that. Here's my philosophy on how and where to decide where to minister. The philosophy is do what you already love to do and do it for ministry. Do the thing you already love to do and that you would do even if no one asks you to do it, and then do that for ministry. Or do what needs to be done and do it until you begin to love it. Do you hear the balance there? Do what you love to do and just do it for ministry. Do it for for reward. Or do what needs to be done and do it until you begin to love it. We need to serve the needs of the saints. Number five, to behave in an oasis of spiritual joy, we need to do the one another's to and for one another. Do the one another's to and for one another, or as we like to call it here, do redemptive relationships. And all that means is, all that means is your spiritual growth is my top priority. My spiritual growth is your top priority. Let me me put it really bluntly. My holiness is your business. And your holiness is my business. And if you're needing and craving those kinds of relationships, not weird, cultish, intrusive relationships I don't mean that. I mean honest relationships where we really are connected with people and authentic, letting them know how we're doing, how they can pray for us. If you are needing those kinds of relationships and you do all need them, that is exactly why small groups at this church exist. That's exactly why they exist. Small groups are platforms for redemptive relationships. And again, small groups are not just Bible studies, although they are that, and we're going to go deep. However, small groups, I want, to picture, I want you to picture small groups sort of like physician's clinics. You come to a small group, you are both physician and the patient. You are coming both to administer Christ, and you are coming to have Christ administered to you. Small groups, and there are, are plenty around. I encourage you to seek out the table and find out where and when those are. Number six Number six, we need to show hospitality to one another. We need to show hospitality to one another. Again, I I trust this is practical enough. I trust this is helping us understand, okay, what internal church health looks like. But again, hospitality is so massive for the church. This is so massive for the church. And the reason for that is is because without hospitality, get this, the Great Commission does not happen. Or it does not happen nearly the way it should. You understand the mission of the church unfolds, advances through flesh and blood interactions, warm meals, cups of coffee, soft couches, having people into your home. That is largely the way the Great Commission unfolds, exactly like they did in Acts chapter 2. And so have one another in your homes, newcomers and, and, and visitors especially, it doesn't have to be amazing. It could be corn dogs and lemonade for all I care, but have people in your home. Number seven. Number seven, women mentoring women. Women discipling women. Because Titus 2 verses 3 through 5 make it really, really plain that older women, however you want to define older women, that their role is to mentor and minister to the younger women and help them be all that God calls them to be in Christ. That's ministry. That, that's discipleship. That, that's how the Great Commission works. That is central to being a healthy church that changes the world, investing in others, being invested in. And, and you don't need my permission to do this. You don't need a, a program to do this. And I will say this, this is increasingly happening in this church, which makes me extremely excited. We have these things called discipleship groups. They're like gender-specific, in-depth Bible study groups where where this is happening, where older women are investing in younger women. It's incredible. Number eight. Number eight. We're going quick here. Training men for leadership. Training men for leadership is essential, central to making this church a haven and oasis of spiritual joy. Because this is going to sound shocking what I'm about to say. But the long-term health any church is profoundly dependent upon the commitment of its leaders to train men for ministry, to train men for spiritual leadership in the church. The health of a church is profoundly dependent upon that. Women, too, because I just said that, but particularly also the men. In fact, 2 Timothy 2, 2, commands pastors to do that very thing, to invest, to invest in young men, train them for ministry. So last year we started this thing called Ezra 710 Men, comes from Ezra 710, kind of cheesy, I know, but the whole point is to train men and invest in them for spiritual leadership, to train them to be, to men, men who correctly handle the word, who proclaim, courageously proclaim the gospel and who are competent leaders for local churches. Finally, number nine, Number nine, family discipleship, family discipleship. And when I say families, I don't only mean people who are married and have kids. I also mean singles because they also are a family unit. But I will say this, a church is only as healthy as the families inside that church. Because if you don't have healthy families, especially healthy men, you don't have a church. We don't have a church and so we're committed here we're committed to to learning how to come alongside moms and dads and and families and, and singles as well to to come alongside them and help them do life and ministry thinking about moms and dads it's important for us to come alongside them and the most important mission and ministry of their entire lives namely the disciple making of their own children and so starting next Tuesday I believe that's the 28th uh, I'll give you the details soon on the when and the where know that's short notice but from 6:30 to 7:30 every family that has young kids we're going to we're going to Probably have him over into our home, Tommy's home. I'll let you know uh, well, on the location. But we're just going to have you over. We're going to talk, open the scriptures. And we're going to talk about nitty-gritty parenting, family, marriage issues, things that happen in the real trenches of life. We're committed to talking about those things and coming alongside you the best we can. Also, we are going to have a spring conference. Last year we started this. We had a family conference. We're going to do that every year. We're going to do a family conference every year. Last year the theme was uh, the the family as a center of glory uh, disciple-making um, uh, um, you know, machine, as it were. This year, we're going to discuss biblical counseling. How do you minister God's word? So we're going to do that in the spring. More details on that later. But that's, that's it. That, that's a lot to absorb. I understand that. But that over the next three years, those and other kinds of things, we're just going to be committed to those kinds of things. We're persuaded that that's going to produce long-term health and impact. The question is, the question is, and then I essentially close with this. Okay, Jared, that's a lot. What do you think is going to be the result of that? Should you do those kinds of things? What what, what will be the ripple effects? Of those kind of internal impact things, and I'm so glad you asked, that brings us to the second, third, and fourth stages of the 20-year plan, super fast, here we go, the second stage of our plan to change the world, years five through seven, again, which we call regional impact. Regional impact, let's call this our Judea. I think in three years-ish, we could be ready, poised to make a regional impact, to to impact the Dallas-Fort Worth area. I think we can begin to start implementing ways to impact the entire city with the gospel, which would include, but not be limited to things like, first, how about a biblical and theological training institute where we train local leaders for more effective ministry? What if we did that here? I think we could do that. I think we have enough capable, competent teachers of the word to be able to do something like that. What if we did that here? Or how about a... Pastoral ministry training program, which trains future pastors, elders, and missionaries for more effective ministry. What if we did that here? Just just investing in in men and their families for more effective ministry. What if we did refugee outreach ministry? Because, again, the nations are here. What about if we had a distinct presence on all the college campuses? Because there are many. In fact, I don't know if you knew this or not, there are around 500,000 college students in the DFW from all over the world. If we're not going to reach them, then who? Who? How about hosting international students in your home? That comes with a cost. That's hard to have someone live with you for a while. Profound impact. How about something easy? Something you don't have to have someone stay in your home, but how about neighborhood evangelistic Bible studies and outreaches just in your home? Just have people from the neighborhood that you've known for years, and then have them over. Study the scriptures. Easy. How about VBS? Only not the traditional kind of VBS, but one that seeks to reach entire families and not just kids all sorts of ministry just there for the taking millions and millions of souls in this area just just waiting to have the gospel proclaimed to them if we're not going to do it then who is might as well be us it must be us third stage third stage of our plan to change the world we're very close very close Years seven through ten we're calling national impact national impact it sounds crazy but how can we impact states outside of the state of Texas? Is that even a possibility? I think it is. What about this? What about if we were so committed to training future pastors that we sent pastors out to seminary and then and to other churches throughout the United States? What if we did that? Would that count as national impact if we had people that we, that we raised and loved and cared for and trained and sent out and they went to seminary or they went to other churches and ministered in ministry in other states, would that count as a national impact from this church? It totally would. And yet I have seen it done where men are sent out to be pastors at other churches and yet it takes a whole church to shape them. Because again, seminary doesn't make pastors. Churches make pastors. Pastors profound opportunity how about this a biblical counseling training center in arlington there isn't one in arlington there isn't one there's one in fort worth there's down whatever it is south of fort worth pretty far away i don't remember what it's called there's not one in in the city of arlington we need to do this we need to become this we need to offer biblical counseling i have seen it done but this is the most effective outreach one of the most effective outreach tools in existence We're light years away from this. Right now, I'm only saying it to you, not because we're we're anywhere close to this, but because I just want you to know this this is a value for us. And, And I want you to be aware that there is opportunity to be a training. So again, not just that we do biblical counseling, but that we train others. We become a center that trains counselors. Other things too, but fourth stage, fourth stage. Years 10 to 20, global impact. What do we mean by global impact? It has to mean It has to mean church planting. It has to mean sending out our own missionaries. It has to mean overseas training of, of local pastors in their countries to strengthen their own churches. It has to mean regular short-term teams to other places around the planet. It has to be what this means. That's what we want to do. 10 to 20 years from now, I not only want to send out our own missionaries. Teague is, is well on his way. That is coming up soon. But behind him, I want a whole runway of people eager and anxious to get to the mission field and asking us to send them. And you see, how that happens, how that happens is if we make equipping and discipling and teaching and counseling and, yes, eating, a top priority. Because the issue is, and I close with this, I'm being honest this time. The, the issue is, we're not interested in looking at the glory days of how things used to be. We're not interested in that. Rather, we want the vision of St. Patrick of Ireland. Do you remember him? St. Patrick of Ireland, his monasteries, his seminaries, his churches that he, that he planted, continued to send out missionaries to mainland Europe 200 years after his death. That's what we want to be, not only in existence 200 years from now, but unless the Lord should come, that we would be a church who is increasing in its great commission impact for the glory of Christ. And I believe by the sovereign grace of Christ, that's exactly the kind of church we can and must be. We'll keep talking about this, about how to do this practically, but I'm asking you to buy in small things, little tiny sparks, should we be faithful to those, produce an inferno of glory for the Great Commission. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we're thankful for the church, Christ. And Lord, it is not our church, the pronouns, we must get right, this is your church. And you build it, you will build it, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so Lord, we look to you and we need you Lord, and Lord, we're, we're asking you to help us to love your bride. We're asking you to help us see the big picture of what you're doing in the world. We're asking you to, to help us see um, not just how we can do more and take on more and just be a bunch of busy people, but how we can maximize our lives for the advance of the Great Commission. I'm asking, O oh Lord, for robust, supernatural body life inside these walls that would produce something glorious and profound and long-term that would reach even the nations. Oh Lord, only you can do that. No one sermon can do that. No, no one program can do that. I'm just asking, I'm just asking that you would use your word and that you would transform us, continue to transform us into a launch site for global ministry for the glory of Christ.